Lord, You have tonight, here in this room, people who have set aside their night for You. Not just to get information, not to be entertained, but to be intimate with You. And I am praying tonight that You would meet us, Lord, at every hunger that we've come here with that I know You've intended to meet with Yourself. Let our minds be active to receive the information, but our hearts quick to receive the life change that You wish to to instill in us. Let our spirits be willing to be made and shaped more in Your image. And may Your Word burst open and come alive, flourish for us in such a real, powerful way tonight for each of us to be so sensitive to Your Holy Spirit. How beautiful, how rich the time You wish to spend with us. Bless every minute of it, I pray. Let tonight be a radical night in You. I commit this to You, Lord, and do pray that every one of us would be perfectly ministered to tonight and we will be perfectly ready for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Immerse me in Your Spirit, God, that they would see You. Come upon me that You would do through me what only You can do. And have Your way now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight is that would any please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible be your authority. The Bible be your final say. First and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, the books that we have in front of us, all tell the story of the time from which Israel transitions out of the book of Judges, out of the time or a season of Judges into the time of the kings, which will end with the captivity of Israel. It is the history until they are taken captive. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, in the Jewish Bible, if you will, where they're written in a different way, ours are taken from the Greek rendering of that, where we would call them the first and second books of Samuel and first and second books of Kings, are called one, two, three, and four kingdoms. First kingdom, second kingdom, second kingdom, third kingdom, fourth kingdom. When we look at historically, or I should say, when we look at the tradition of Easter, we think of three kings. And that's, by the way, nowhere in Scripture. We just read that there are three gifts, so we just kind of assign a king with each. We even have names for them now, which is kind of fun. And, of course, a donkey and a drummer boy. Things we don't find in Scripture. I can't tell you they weren't there, but it seems a little unlikely that there would be a drummer boy, a bunch of animals, and Silent Night all happening at the same time. I don't know. What do I know? But the only reason I say that is there is a biblical three kings. Israel leaving Egypt in the book of Exodus, because the book of Exodus, Exodus means exit. So that makes sense. That'd be easy. God then sets them apart, gives them, if you will, not laws to get them out of Egypt. They're already out of Egypt. But if you will, give them, if you will, a standard for them not to go back to their Egypt. That's Leviticus. Numbers shows us then what happens when they don't. 
And then the book of Deuteronomy prepares them now to enter into the promised land. Joshua takes them into the promised land, divvies up the land, and then the nation gets sedentary. And in doing so, we find this horrible cycle where the people get so comfortable they turn their back on God. They forget the blesser for his blessings. And then they find themselves in captivity. And it has to get so bad that they finally cry out to God. How bad does it have to get for you? Interesting, because from the time they enter the promised land, the word worship, by the way, will take place once in the book of Joshua, only once in the book of Judges, none in the book of Ruth. And that means in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, there'll be more mentions of the word worship than there are in all the books past the Torah so far combined. That tells me something is changing here. Once Israel leaves this cycle of finally, once life gets so bad, they cry out to God and He raises up a deliverer that will then act, if you will, as the, well, we might say He might act as the prime minister. That would be our judge. That ends with God telling us the state of the situation by saying in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No king because God was supposed to be their king, but He wasn't. And when God is not your king, you will make up your own idea of what's right. Have you noticed that yet? And the reason we make up our own is because we don't like God's standard for right. We like to ease up on things. In other words, it's like God wants us totally healthy, but we'd like a little bit of the flu at at best. So how does God remove them out of a time where there's no king in Israel and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? He gives them a king. And there will be three kings of the United Empire. Saul, and then replaced by God's choice, David, if you will. God's ordained. Though they both are in some manner. And then David's son, Solomon. Solomon has a divided heart. And in his divided heart, the kingdom will divide after Solomon. The north ten tribes will go to Solomon's commander, Jeroboam, or Jerry, if you wish. And the southern two tribes and the renegade Levites who go south will go to his son, Rehoboam. From there, the northern tribes will have 19 kings, all of them wicked, none of them seeking, if you will, for all people to turn to God. And they will be taken captive in 721-722 B.C. by the Assyrians in the north. That will happen during the reign of Hezekiah in the south and during the profiting, if you will, the prophetship of Isaiah in the south and the north. But they don't heed the warning. It would be like watching Scotland being taken captive by a warning that God says, this is what happens when you don't do this. And they didn't and that happened. And then we start finding ourselves in the same place. We should expect it. And by 586 B.C., the south is taken captive by Babylon. That will be the story we will read in the next six books.
But that's not the end of the story by God's grace. You turn your back on God, don't expect His blessings, which include His provision, His protection, His presence, His pleasure. God promised they would return and just like He promised, even promised the guy who would come, his name is Cyrus, over a hundred years before he was born and over a hundred years before anyone named anyone Cyrus. It wasn't like he, you know, he banked on Bob or John hoping that the guy would be named that. And then the nation would return to rebuild first the temple, then the people, and then the wall. Which, by the way, we would call the reconstruction books. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They are a great story of what happens when you've fallen away and need to be restored. Great lessons to be learned there. That will take us to roughly 400 to 450 B.C. That will be the end of our history other than a handful of prophets. Here in our text now, we are right at the end, and if you will, the height of the horror of the judges season. Do you remember that season in your own life? I hope that you can only remember it and you're not living it now. Where you're not letting him be Lord, but you're still wanting him just to bank on being Savior. And therefore, you, you take his blessings and then you run off. We're roughly at about 1100-ish B.C. To give you an idea. The last judge we saw, if you remember, was Samson. There was a Levite for hire. Do you remember that? That almost led to the extermination of the tribe of Benjamin. There was moral anarchy. But God is going to reinsert Himself so much that the name Lord, or if we will, Yehovah or Yahweh, is mentioned 60 times in the first three chapters of this book. And the whole nation, and please hear me as we get into this now, is going to pivot on one person. One person that is midst to stand up in the midst of a perverse generation around him. But please hear me. The perverse generation around him was not the unchurched. The perverse generation around him was the church. In this case, if you will, God's people, the Jews. It wasn't like he was just standing against the Gentiles. This guy was in the midst. In the midst of total moral anarchy amidst God's people because it wasn't the world that was doing what was right in their own eyes. Why would you take note of that? That happens anyways. It was that the church, or if you will, the Jews that were doing what was right in their eyes. There's where the problem is, beloved. The problem is, is that the church is doing what's right in their own eyes instead of letting God dictate what is right and wrong. There's our problem. The world around it, God is not focusing on that. And what God does in our first few verses here is He takes us to a couple in crisis. Please hear me on this. This is the time where if God were to say, if God were to knock on your door and say, hey, how about I write you into the Bible right now in your life? You'd go, could you come back when we're better? This is a really rough time for this couple. And if you will, it's even worse because there's three. There's a guy and two wives. And it's like, this is a rough time. This is a time where there is great pain. There's real suffering. I mean, we read words like wailing and then really wailing. I mean, not where you just cry, but where you scream when you cry. Have you been there? Because that's where God takes us in the midst of a woman where a woman is falling 
apart. And God says, now let's start this here. And you go, wow, that would almost seem cruel if you didn't see what God had planned. And yet in this chapter, God inserts this word worship more times than the last three books combined. Something is changing here. And we start with a guy. 1 Samuel 1.1 1, 1, There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. Ramathaim Zophim, by the way, means double heights of the watchers. There are Ramah, there are five of them in Scripture. Of the Ramahs, if you will, Ramaim, there is this particular one, which then we read is an Ephraim. His name, by the way, is Elkanah. Can you say Elkanah? Try it. Elkanah means God creates, or literally God takes possession. Or for God to possess. The next name we read is he's the son of Yerucham. Try Yerucham. Yerucham means in showing pity. Imagine, who names their kid that? The next name is Elihu. Try Elihu. Elihu or Elihu literally means he's my God. Or he will to become or to be my God. He is. The next name, Tofu. No, that's not it. Tohu. Try Tohu. Tohu means he must or he becomes lowly. And then the name Zof. Zof means flowing. Ephraimite or an Ephraimite. Ephraim means fruitfulness. Now, he runs us through a lineage. Now, here's the cool thing about living in England. Living in England, we have these really cool names that we recognize that they mean something. They mean funny things, if we're going to be honest about it. I mean, you take the DLR, the Docklands Light Rail, and you can go past Mudshoot. Which one of you thinks, now there's the place to live, Mudshoot. You can go right by Brick Lane over to Spittlefields. Spittlefields, a field of spit. Now, the reason I say that is we live in a place where we see these names, and we probably don't think about it as much anymore, but they're English words that now we've just kind of gotten used to. That's just Spittlefields. That's just Mudshoot. That's just the way it is. The reason I say that is, is the same way we could say, well, there's a name Dawn, or we could say there's a name June, or there's a name Tuesday, or Friday, or whatever. And, and you kind of go, well, you kind of guess maybe she was born in June, or maybe she was born on a Friday, or whatever the case is. But we kind of know that kind of tells us, well, these are names in Hebrew, in a Hebrew culture. It's the same idea. You know, it's somebody that, you know, what you, you take a guy and you hang him on the wall. What's his name? His name is Art. We get it. Here, these names mean something. And if you ran through this lineage, you would be reading this. God, to take possession, shows pity. To be my God, he becomes lowly to flow fruitfulness. That's what I'm reading here. And that becomes, in essence, the whole story of the book of 1 Samuel. To become lowly, to become fruitful. God promises he who humbles himself will be exalted. But he who exalts himself will be humbled. And we read about the guy in verse 2 now. He had two wives. The name of one is Hannah. Hannah means grace. Like Hannah or Johanna, like John. Any of those variations are all the name grace. And the name of his other wife, Penina, means ruby or jewel. So we've got one grace and the other ruby or jewel. Now, Penini had children, but Grace had no children. And this man went up yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, which, by the way, is where the tabernacle is at this time. Also, the two sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, stop there for a moment. Don't miss this. Because we are living in a culture... Now, look, at, in every culture, this happens a little bit. But it, this, this happens on steroids in this culture. Now, no matter what culture you're in, you're in an Italian culture, you get married, it doesn't take long before the parents start asking, where are the grandchildren? And let me, under, let me please explain why as a parent. I'm learning this because I'm just getting to this age. Now, it isn't like I want my kids getting pregnant. I have one in 18, one that's 12, and neither one of them are married which is reasonable. But somewhere down the line, you have these children and they're innocent and they love you and they hug you unreluctantly and you could kiss them on the head and it's not weird and they can sit in your lap and there's nothing weird about it and you hold their hand and it's sweet and, they, and you, you feel that little hand in yours and you love it. And they grow older and it's like what's funny is the first time you have children, at least I'm going to say for myself, you can't wait for them to grow up a little bit because I never knew children before. I mean, I didn't like children when I was one. I never was ever around them. That's, that's me. That's not you, perhaps. So, but I knew how to have adult conversations. I mean, in the sense of intelligent conversations. The idea of just going... I didn't do that to animals. I certainly wasn't going to do that to children. So I couldn't wait for my first one to get old enough for me to have an intelligent conversation with her. The sad part was, was I was so excited about her growing up so I could have a real relationship with her. I didn't realize all the bonding I got through those first few years. Well, really, to be honest, all we did was kind of look at each other, laugh, and I cleaned her. You know, at times, I mean, you know, there's it's weird because it's so non-spoken, but it's so intimate. And I didn't realize it until I got older. But somewhere down the line, what happens is they get older and you have these, you know, they become then they become mutants because they become teenagers. And when they become teenagers, you start looking back and go, oh, I miss those simpler days. I wanted to complicate it so I could have a complicated conversation. But boy, do they get complicated. They get so complicated, you're like, that's not exactly what I was asking for. And then what happens is you miss those simpler days where, to be honest, they would just sit in your lap and you could hold them and it wasn't weird. So what happens? How do you get that? You ask for grandkids. My brother says, grandkids are God's way of rewarding you for not killing your own children. I get it. But in our culture, that's kind of as far as it goes. But then let's be honest. In our culture, we don't even marry until much later now. So we, we don't really have that right as much to play that. But in the Middle East, everything banked around that. People equated, please hear me, people equated the size of your household with the size of God's blessing in your life. And to be honest, the closest thing I can relate that to, to be honest, is being a pastor. When people ask, how big is your church? They assume that the bigger the church is in regards to the more people that come, the larger your household, well, then the larger, the greater God's blessing. That's not always the case by any means. Now, the reason I say that is, is that Hannah's in a position where she's very awkward. She is one of two wives of this guy. And the other gal, we, we're going to know, is puts out at least four kids because we read sons and daughters. They're both plural. So that has to be at least four. Now, what we're going to find is, at least in the next chapter, when she goes into this beautiful song, it appears as if there's even more than that because there's like the whole term of many and, and all of them. I mean, there's these terms when she goes into this. And then there's Hannah. And it's like, you know, people are like, I mean, and you know that, you, you know, when people are kind of looking at you, but they're not saying anything, but you can kind of go, oh, I just know they're probably thinking. And that's even more painful sometimes than someone even saying something to you. Well, that's where she's at. And she's at that all the time. She's at a very fruitless place. 
Now, let me ask you, I'm going to put a word out. And I want to ask you, you you can answer it in your own mind or heart. When I say this word, when you try to relate this word to you, what do you think of? What do you draw from in your past? And the word is failure. And what's the thing that comes to your mind when you think people would say, what a failure you are? What would that be? And the hurt. And Do you remember those emotions you feel? Those are the emotions Hannah feels in that culture because for her, she had one specific... Of all the things she would be called to, that would be the one thing you could gauge. And every time they see her without a child, you know that's what's going through her mind. They see me as a failure. How come you don't have any... And, you know, who is friends enough to say, how come you don't have any kids yet? And even if they were to ask, what do you say? I, I don't know how to answer that. God, God hasn't given them. Well, why hasn't God given them? And you can imagine the jo- sort of Job's counselors you will get. Well, what do you need to change in your life for that to happen? What's wrong with you? Why isn't God blessing you like that? What did you do wrong? What are you not doing right? That you're not bearing forth this fruit. And it's going to get even worse. But I remind you, this is where the show starts, if you will. This is where the scene opens, and it opens at a place where a girl's in a real great pain. She's in a great pain because she feels like a failure. I don't know if that's you tonight. I mean, the crazy part is, is, is people could be doing things that means that seem to be, from all worldly perspectives, absolute. I mean, well, we couldn't even dream of accomplishing what some other people do, and and then they. But that doesn't mean they don't feel that too, though. I just read a, an article, or a bit of an article, uh, about the director of The Age of Ultron, the second uh, Avengers movie. And what's his name? Is it Josh Whedon? Is that who it is? Who said afterwards he felt like a complete and utter failure. He says well, every time he looks back at that movie, he feels like a complete and utter failure. I mean, it scored all these box office records. It made all this money. All these people talked about it in so many ways. So many people really, really liked it or whatever. It's neither here nor there because it's a movie. But the point is that from the perspective of movie makers, a lot of the things we would gauge success by, it seemed extremely successful, but not to him. To him, he still looks at it and he feels like a failure. And you would go, what's wrong with the guy? He's got. And the reason I say that is, is just because your situation may not be unsuccessful in the size of other people, that doesn't mean you don't feel like a failure in it. So that's the hard part about saying, you know, this is an area I feel very sensitive about. I feel like a failure in And other people could be like, I don't want to see why. And it's hard because it can be your own private thing. But yet in all of that, the reason I said this, God starts this at this place. But I remind you, God wants to take possession of the situation by showing pity to show and to be our God. Not just God, but my God. He's going to become lowly to make this thing fruitful. And I get that because he has to get lowly to meet us because to be honest, when you feel like a failure, we're not going to rise up at a point like that because we don't even feel like trying. And God's in the midst of this situation and we don't see it yet because when you feel like a failure, the last thing you think is God's setting us up for something awesome. It says, by the way then, something, something the first ray of hope starts in this verse 3. Because clearly, verse 2, we see the opposite. It says, this man went up 
from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, in the midst of everyone doing what's right, and I remind you, this is still in the Sea of Judges. This is not like at the end of it all, now everyone's cleaned up the rack, there's been great repentance. We are now at a time where it's really still really, really bad. It's horrible. And again, remind you, this is God's people. We're not talking about the unsaved world. We're talking about in the church, there's just, it's scandal after scandal. It's anything goes. It's, you know, I know God says no, but uh, God doesn't really say no. I've decided God said it no. God said no, and that's, you know, or didn't say no. I mean, and you know how that is. And, and all of that's because we see that today. But in the midst of all of that, there is this guy. And he goes to worship. And I haven't seen worship, the word worship, since Gideon, when God promised them victory, and he confirmed that promise, and then Gideon worshiped. The time before that, I didn't see it until Joshua was aware of the fact he was in the presence of God with the commander of God's army, for which then he fell down on his face. I haven't seen it since then. Besides those two cases, then I go, wow. You know, it's like this is, so, I, I, this is something I haven't seen in a long time. Somebody really got, and God's making this note. This guy's really coming to worship. Now listen, please. In the simplest sense, worship is introduced We know this in Genesis 22 when Abraham actually goes to offer his son up on the mountain and he says the lad and I or the boy and I will go up to worship. Interesting because the one thing Abraham is doing in the simplest sense is one word. Worship is really one word and that word is yes. That's what worship is. Worship is yes. When you're looking at God, if you have a yes in your heart to whatever he would say, that's worship. To be honest, you're worshiping anyone that if that's what you're doing is that you have a yes no matter what they would say. There, what you're saying is you are worthy of making that said. Now, understand the word worship, shecha, the word in Hebrew here, literally means to throw yourself prostrate before someone. And the idea of it is you're big, I'm little, you call the shots, and I don't. Now imagine, what I'm saying by saying yes to God is you have the right to be my Lord. You make me, you lead me, you guide me. That's your job. I'm going to follow you. That's the idea in the Hebrew. My yes to God from a Hebrew perspective is you call the shots, you're the boss. But in the, but in the Greek, and I love that God puts us both in that. The word in the Greek is pros kineho. Pros means towards, kineho means to kiss. And the idea of that now is the turning to seek intimacy and in, 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 in total vulnerability. And I get this, to say yes to God is to say, you have, the call, you have the right to call the shots. And God says, well, if I call the shots, then this is what I really want from you. I want you to love me. That's what I want. I want you to be vulnerable to me so that I could really get to your heart. And I realized, if I had a yes, a real yes in my heart to God, that's what I would get. And this guy now comes... Now understand, just because God says it in Scripture doesn't mean He endorses it. The guy has two wives. God didn't say, and what a good thing that was. Anyone who's married should know one's more than enough. And I don't mean that in any bad way. I love my wife. She's awesome. But I can't even imagine trying to keep two women happy. That's just crazy. Nowhere in Scripture does that ever seem to work out well. And here, by the way, what we find is there's going to be a real problem in the household. But please hear me. There's more than that in the story here. Because what he tells us is, this was the time when not only was Eli at this place, but also his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Try Hophni. Try that. Hophni. 
Chofni. Try that. You got to get that. Chofni. You got to get that. Chofni. You try it. That's that not bad. Well, some of you. Okay. And then, then try Fremdehas. Fremdehas. Now, the reason I say that is, this is what these names are. And I remind you, this is Hebrew. So, the name you get, we, we understand what the names mean. The first name, by the way, Chofni means puncher. Who names their kid puncher? Now, maybe the kid's born and he's kind of doing this. Is he? I don't know. But that's the first kid. And I go, okay, that's kind of a real weird name. But the second name, Fnechas, literally means serpent mouth. No, I don't know. He's born going, I don't really know. But get this. The two priest kids' names are Puncher and Serpent Mouth. And what's interesting is that's very much their personalities. What we're going to find is, by the next, by the next chapters, these guys are sleeping with girls, having sex with them right at the gate, right at the door of the tabernacle. And they're taking raw meat and, and, and basically saying, I will punch you if you don't give it to me. Talk about Puncher and Serpent Mouth, they're living up to their names. Now, this is the reason I say that, is in the midst of this, in the midst of this sexual anarchy in God's people, in the midst of the violence and the bullying and all of this horrible abuse, God still focuses on this guy who's still coming to worship because somewhere in all of this, there's still a God who isn't this. That still is, he's nothing like this. He's not punching me. That's not what he's about. And he's not about all this sexual promiscuity. He's not about any of that stuff. There's a love that is so much more pure that we just left in Ruth. Could God find that in us? Because would it be the cowardly way, and I mean that sincerely, would it be the cowardly way for to say, oh, I don't need to be part of a fellowship, I don't need to be part of something, because after all, look at all of the abuse I see in the world, and look at all the stuff called Christendom, and, and, the, and look at all the scandals, and look at all the talk, and look at all the back talk, and all the rumors, and all this, oh, I don't need to be a part of that. God's like, God's like, stop it, stop it. Stop trying to get overwhelmed by the politic so that you somehow think that's a good enough reason for you not to come to me and worship. And I remind you, this wasn't like the guy just went in in his house and did a little like private worship thing. He still went to the tabernacle where this was happening. Because he knew that that was supposed to be a place of prayer and that's where he went. And what's interesting is what happens when you start to worship. In this particular case, notice by the way, so this is our scene. Did he have to walk by that when he came by the came by the door. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine a couple just kissing passionately at the door that you have to walk by. You have to walk by that. When he came to offer his offering, did Puncher or Serpent Mouth say, give me that raw meat even though it's supposed to be boiled first? Or I'll punch you. God says that as a result of this, people hated coming. And that made God really angry. And yet in the middle of all of this, and He's going to deal with these boys. God doesn't spend all of His time talking about how angry He is at these people and the, and the problems. God spends His time talking about a guy who's hungry for the, right, for the real deal. Because you don't even know how rare this is. 
So when it came time for Elkanah, now notice he's come to worship, and it says in verse 4, when it, whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, even though the Lord had closed her womb. Now please don't miss this. This is the first thing we start to see happen as a result of coming to worship. Because this guy came not to a private thing, but he came to something where he came to a place where he was going to fellowship, and in that fellowship he was going to worship the Lord. God stops focusing on him for a second. He starts pointing us back to the girl. All of the failure, you're a failure, you're a failure. You tried that, it didn't work out, you couldn't do it. You've been trying and you can't get there. You've been trying, you're not getting there. Why are you still single? Why aren't you having kids? Why haven't you gotten that job? Why haven't you done this thing yet? Why are you still doing this? Why are you not... And you, you live with all of this for so long. And it goes, but all of a sudden they got into the house of the Lord. And as they got into the house of the Lord, in this case the tabernacle, the first thing that Hannah recognizes is, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I am loved and favored. Even though I'm still loved and favored. Even in the midst of all this, I'm unfavored. All of a sudden, the one place, the one place where she doesn't feel like a failure. Now, that doesn't mean she doesn't heap the failure feeling on herself at that point, if that makes sense. Because let's face it, sometimes you just could do it yourself. Nobody else is doing it. You think you're filling the gap. But this is the one place where it's like, Elkan is like, honey, I love you. And here's an, and you know why she realizes it? Because she sees at this place of worship how much she's been given. Isn't that what church should be? A place where you come back and you're reminded again how much you've been given simply because someone loves you? Not what you've earned, what you've accomplished, how much fruit you've squirted out or whatever. I mean, pardon me, I'm not trying to be crude, but it's like, this should just be the place where it's like, would you stop for a minute? Stop wondering why you're not yet. And this should be the next season of life. And how come you haven't gotten there yet? I mean, this should just be the place where it's like, could you just realize you're loved for who you are right now? And do you realize how much he's given you? Because you don't realize that. And what in the world are we doing here? This should be the place that should be different. That's why church is not supposed to look like the world. Because you can get the rest of it elsewhere. But here, as they come to worship, and again, listen, he came to say yes to God. He came and said, God, yes. Yes, God. That's what he's telling us. And when he came to say yes, what happened is things started to change in his household. Because they came to worship. And then God takes us from this and shows us, look at what it says then in verse 6. And, it doesn't say whilst, but and because of her favor, because of this love, her rival, that's the other girl that her husband's married to, provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year she went up to the house of the Lord and she provoked her because she wept. And did not, because of that, she wept and did not eat. Now please hear me in this. The word provoked, by the way, is ka'ach. And ka'ach, by the way, means to anger, to vex, to make your, to treat so unfairly. But the word miserable here, ra'am, means to roar, to thunder. And that's the word here for miserable. 
I mean, let's face it. There's a place where you're uncomfortable. There's a place where you kind of get depressed and you just don't want to do anything and you're like apathetic. And, just, and, then, there it gets, and then it gets worse to that place where something inside of you, you're just like, you're going to like explode, you know. And then it gets to the place where you do. Where something breaks, the levee breaks, the barrier busts, and now it's just like, bah! and it just comes out in whatever way, whether that pours in or it comes out, and you just crumble. That's where she's at. She's not just at, you know, well, this is, I mean, you're making, you're really making my life miserable, like we would say. In other words, what you're doing is you're, you're real thorn in my flesh. No, this is the place where she is at this point, she is despondent. She's like giving up. She is so, she is, she's melting down. She's shattering. You know why? Because in the worship it became evident that this girl was loved. And, and here's the, and, and it really is sad for Panina in this sense. There's nothing Panina can do to be, to listen, 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 to earn that love. She already has all these kids. What more can she do? And there is the difference. Look at the difference between the two women. One girl's loved because she's simply loved, though she has nothing to offer. The other one has all of this stuff to offer, but it's not enough. Do you see the difference? Because it's the difference between religion, as we would know it elsewhere, and Jesus. I don't have anything to offer Jesus but my surrender, but my relationship. And that's the one thing he wants. And he loves me. But on the other side, all of my works wouldn't be enough for him anyways. I couldn't buy his love with it. And because of that, there are going to be those. By the way, this is a foretaste of what's going to happen with Jesus, isn't it? Who, by the way, grace and truth comes. But then this judgment and these people provoke him the same way. So she's clearly to the point where she is so miserable she can't eat. And Elkanan, verse 8, says to her, and boy, listen, at first it sounds like just a classic guy statement, ladies, doesn't he? He's like, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better you than ten sons? And imagine what he's saying is, hey, you got me, baby. Ain't that enough? And then we can see that going, well, that seems really insensitive. But i got to be honest, I like to walk Scripture. And what I mean by that, not just let's just put it into practice, but I, I kind of get the idea and I'm, I'm tearing it apart and I'm kind of making sure that it, how it fits in the Scripture and all that. And then I kind of walk and I go, well, put me in this situation for a moment. Let me see this. Let me see it culture. Let me understand what's going on. Get me to where the heart of this matter is. And there's something that kind of hits me in this because it's something that the Lord starts showing me to me. Now, prayerfully to you as well. But from a husband's perspective, the only place where this girl gets honor is from the one person that really matters. Please hear me in that. Does she really need honor from the rest, from the culture around her? Well, who doesn't want to be liked? But in the end of it all, it's not going to matter as much. The rival, well, we wouldn't expect a rival to, you know, to, to applaud us, to like us. We're their rival. But the one we love, well, that's the one that really matters. And this is what he's saying. Please, please, please hear me with your heart. The husband, the groom is saying, isn't my honor enough? I mean, you could have all of these children so that the world can honor you for it. But if you had all of that and not my honor, would that be better for you? And I start to think among myself, to be honored by God, 
by my groom. Wouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? I mean, here's the weird part. If that's the case, I'll want to do things excellently because I'm honored, not to win it, and certainly not to get applause from someone else. But what if God's speaking that into you tonight? Your name here, isn't my honor enough? I know right now you're really hurting because you're waiting for something to happen and it's not happening like you want it to. And you, and you don't understand. You don't understand. And maybe what God's really trying to speak into that right now is, hey, if you got all of that but you didn't see how important it is to be satisfied with my honor of you, you'll be worse because you'll get there and you'll realize it doesn't fill the gap. And then you'll be more desperate than you are right now. Because you will have gotten the thing you thought would take care of it, and it's not. Isn't my honor enough? It's interesting, I've learned, and I won't develop it too much for the sake of time, but I honor God, by the way. Psalm 66, 2 tells us that we honor Him, by the way, in praise. Interesting, in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your possessions, so I honor Him when I give properly and they honor him when i obey proverbs 15:33 so i honor him when i praise i honor him when i give and i honor him when i obey he honors me by the way when i'm humble and faithful and kind but to be honest he honors me first at the cross when i was none of those things he honored me by showing how important i was when he died for me when i hated him Now, Hannah, by the way, this speech didn't seem to work for her. Remember, he's like, honey, isn't this enough? Verse 9 says, Hannah arose after he had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And I wonder if the dad's sitting at the doorpost to keep his boys from causing trouble. And she was, verse 10, in bitterness of soul. Interesting. What book did we just leave? What was the book right before this? Ruth. And do you remember what her mother-in-law said when she came back to Bethlehem? Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Remember that? That's the word here for bitterness. She was literally Mara Nefesh. Mara, bitter of self. But what's interesting is, where is she at? She's at the tabernacle. Why is she at the tabernacle? Because every year... Her husband went there to worship. So not only while I'm actually genuinely, listen, I'm not talking about when we sing or when the music starts. I'm talking about when I come with that yes in my spirit to God, genuine worship, which then should come in song because I honor Him that way. We'll come in the study of His Word to obey it. But understand, when I come with that, clearly I start to realize how loved I am and that His honor is enough. But what's interesting is here as well, what I also realize at this point is that it's the place where I could really honestly at that point pour out my bitterness before Him and not hold on to it anymore. And that's what she's going to do. She's not going to hold on to that bitterness anymore and let it kill her while she's trying. What's interesting is what God responds with. She says she made a vow to the Lord now. O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, 
the word, by the way, would be the idea of torture or torment. And not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will come upon his head. Of course, interesting, because that's, of course, the idea of a Nazarite vow from number six. What's interesting is the last big judge we had was Samson, who had that, if you remember. She's like, I'm going to give him to you, God. And, and may he be the opposite of what Samson was in character, but in all of the strength and all the right. And she's like, look at in the end of it all, this is your child. If you give me this child, he's yours anyways. That's all I'm asking. Can I give him to you? Could you imagine if we said that about everything? God, whatever you give me, if you give it to me, it's yours. Here's the sad part. This girl is in the middle of a meltdown and she's at the one place where she's pouring forth her bitterness. But there is a guy there whose world is very different from that. And that's Ellie. Imagine his household. But the guys, remember, punch her in serpent mouth? Because as it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Ellie watched her mouth. Now, Shema, the word for guard we saw back in the garden. And the idea of it, he's kind of staring at her mouth. And I don't want to go any kind of weird place with it, but I'm kind of wondering why he is at this point. But just the same. And it says, Hannah spoke in her heart, and only her lips moved because her voice wasn't heard. And Ellie thought she was drunk. Now, why did he think she was drunk? Because that's the world he knows. Titus, by the way, and most of you may be familiar with this verse, Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. Have you ever talked to somebody and everything you say becomes an innuendo, but you never meant any of them? And they're like, oh, I can't believe you said that. And you think, I can't believe you think I meant something other than that by it. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Listen, a defiled individual, you're not going to get pure to them. They don't get pure. Even their mind and their consciences are defiled. You try to explain to them a, a, a good, healthy marriage or a good, healthy church or what it means to walk with Jesus and to be washed clean and to not desire. They don't understand. Peter says, by the way, that they don't understand why you wouldn't run into their same flood of dissipation with them. They make fun of you for it. Ellie looks and he thinks, the only people who talk with their, like, with their lips but don't say anything, those are drunk people. And so he says to her, so here's the thing. Girls, could you imagine this? You're in the middle of a meltdown over this and you're kind of crying out to God and imagine the pastor, please don't imagine it to be me, looks and goes, why are you drunk? In front of her, he screams across the place, stop being a drunkard, woman. Imagine she's like, oh my goodness, really could this day get any worse? How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answers, and I remind you, her name means grace. No, my Lord. I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit, literally a cruel being right now. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. He's going, you know what? I'm not drunk with alcohol. I'm not stoned, to be honest. I am just punch drunk with sorrow. I'm just so beat up right now. I can't even think straight. I don't even know what to do. So, you know, I'm just, just trying to cry out to God. Now, imagine being this Ellie at this point. He's got some serious crow to eat. Don't consider your maidservant a, a wicked woman. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I've spoken until now. And Ellie says, oh, um, well, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you've asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. But look at what happened. So the woman went her way, ate. Remember how she couldn't before? And her face was no longer sad. 
And then they rose up early in the morning and worshipped. Notice the they there in verse 19. Rose up and worshipped before the Lord. Now please don't miss this. Do you know what happened? Please, please listen, please. Because this is every one of us now. Something inside of you is eating you away. Man, you are just. And you pour it forth before God. And notice, by the way, even in a situation like this, even the clergy wasn't... I mean, the clergy obviously weren't the magic because they were as numbskull as anyone's going to be here. But what you find is, is that she, she pours forth. She's like, God, I am so broken. This, I'm so broken. I, I'm fractured. I am I, unsound. I'm really, really not well. I'm shattered. And you know what God responds with? A promise. Hey, I've got this handled. You are going to be better. This will come to an end. Now, listen. Just because God lays a promise doesn't mean you're better. It takes your faith now. Because in that faith, things change. Because at that moment, you could either grab a hold of the grief again and re-embrace it, or you could grab a hold of God's promise and be set free. Let me ask you tonight, which one do you want to be? Do you always want to be the one that's going to be a failure in your own heart? Always going to be the one that's like, you don't understand. I'm always going to be second class. I'm always going to be second string. I'm always going to be not what I could have been because now I'm broken. But God says, here's a promise for you. Here's the good news. Grace grabs the promise. Did you see that? And how do I know it? Because at that moment, three things change. Her countenance, her appetite, and her behavior. Listen, her countenance, she was no longer sad. Her appetite, now she eats. Her eating changed. She wasn't eating and now she is. Imagine how weird it would be for Elkanah. He kind of watches and she comes in, she's like, what's for dinner? He's like, what, what, what? You normally don't eat anything. Now he's guarding his plate. But the third thing, notice, and she worshipped. When you truly grab a hold of God's promise, do you know what happens? You worship. It makes you say yes more. Interesting, because up to this point, by the way, and we'll see that by the end, we'll see that God's promise is the prime, one of the two primary reasons, we res- things that we respond to that cause us to worship. So this is what happens. We'll bring this around to close. Now, verse 19 to finish that verse. So they rose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. That means he gave her attention for this. He, he, he said he was promising, he was going to make it to pass. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. So she called him Shema'el, which means He's God, or literally, he has heard. God has heard. And that's the idea here. Because she says, because I've asked of the Lord. Now, Hannah and all his household went up to offer 
to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. He's going up to worship again. Hannah didn't go this time. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And Hannah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she weaned him. But when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls and ephah flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord of Shiloh, and the child was young. Now, please don't miss this. Because it's easy. Here's the cool thing. We live in a culture where a lot of inference is said. Boy, British culture is a really great one for this because sometimes you realize you have to really read into what's being said because a lot more is being said than the, the lyric before you. And I realized what she's going, you know, he's going, honey, are you coming with me to the worship? And she's going, not right now. I, gotta, I want to hold on to this a little bit longer. And he goes, and notice his response. His response wasn't just, okay, well, that's really cool. You know, one of these days, don't worry. Notice he says, only let the Lord establish his word. Now, what the husband is saying, and put this into our culture, because it's a good one for this. He's saying, honey, you did make this promise. Let's make sure this comes to pass. Make sure that the Lord really establishes this. This is going to happen. And here's the point. Please Please hear me in this, because this is the hard thing of all the things when we come to worship, as we know that when we come to worship, sooner or later we're going to have to let some things go that we really love. But we promised Him these are His. She's like, let me hold on to it a little bit longer. Now, there's a good in that, because in those first few years, kind of like Moses with his mother, there's these years of, of this, again, back to that intimate connection again. But she's like, hey, it's interesting because you used the word give before. Now it's going to be lent. But it's, I get it. But let me ask you, are you really afraid to fully say yes to God? Because, you know, there's something you're holding on to that if he said, I want, it really wouldn't be a yes. Because understand somewhere in it, Elkanah is saying, hey, 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 don't forget, there is a vow to be fulfilled and God's going to fulfill it. It would be good. The good news is she does. Once she's finished weaning, and there's argument over how long that, that's going to last. Ultimately, you know, we don't have to get into, you know, a guy named Kimchi, by the way. No, how he's a Jewish scholar with a name like that, I don't know. Yarki, uh, by the way, and Ben Melech. The whole point of it is they all have argument over one. The point, God doesn't tell us because the point is she's holding on to it, but sooner or later she's going to have to let it go. And it says that when she had weaned him, she took the sacrifice. Now, in Numbers 15, by the way, and now again, we're only a few verses from done. God tells us in 15.8 what you offer, by the way, to fulfill a vow. You prepare a young bull as a burnt offering, the sacrifice to fulfill a vow, as a peace offering to the Lord, then you'll be offered with a young bull, grain offering of, two, of three tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with a half a hint of oil. Uh, and it's interesting. And then it'll be wine as well. Uh, we'll see in the following verse. And what happens is she seems to take at least three times the offering, by the way, for the boy. They slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Ellie. It's interesting because that would mean that you would be offering this stuff and it's a peace offering. So what happens is you, you burn all the other stuff and then you invite people to say, I'm at peace with God. And I can see that. I love that here. The idea that once you do finally let that thing go, even though it's a beautiful thing or whatever the case is, that doesn't mean, remember, she's saying Lent now, but in the end of it all, it's like God's like, let me have it. You know what's always going to be in the best hands when it's in my hands anyway. When he's in my hands, let him go. Let me have him. Let me do what I want with him here. 
Now imagine handing over your boy, let's say three years old, handing him over to the household of old fat blind dad, what we're going to find in, in chapters to come, and punch her in serpent mouth will be your big brothers who are sleeping with girls at the door of the tabernacle and who are abusing people. How, how do you do that? I could see why you'd want to hold on. But she offers this and says, you know what, this is a peace offering now. I'm going to be at peace with God because, I, because we're, we're clean. It's all yours now. It's all yours. Slaughtered the bull that brought the child to Eli. Remember, that's the priest. And she said to him, verse 26, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Remember that a few years ago? For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Notice verse 28, Therefore I have also lent him to the Lord. For how long? For the rest of his life. Apparently, Hannah must think she's going to get the child back once this life is over. You know, David thought the same idea when he lost his first child with Bathsheba. Second Samuel 12.23 says, When the child had died, he's dead. How, why should I fast? I can't bring him back again. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And it ends with this. As long as he lives, he will be lent to the Lord so they worship the Lord there. This chapter started with the roughest of circumstances. Then worship happened and there was a promise. And as there was a promise, worship happened. And then the promise came to pass and worship happened. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant sees the promise of a bride, his mission, by the way, being fulfilled, and he worships. In Exodus 4, God gives promise of deliverance, and the nation worships. In Exodus 12, he says, now what's going to happen? And they worship. In Judges 7, God tells Gideon, he confirms his promise through the enemy camp with a dream about the killer barley loaf. And Gideon worships. Faith will cause you to embrace God's promises and worship. And say, yes, Lord. In Exodus 33, the people saw a pillar of the cloud descending to the tabernacle. They saw God's presence. And they worshipped. In 34, Moses asked to show me your glory, he says. And God descends, calls out his name and comes before him. And he worships. In Joshua 5.14, Joshua recognizes the presence of the Lord as the commander standing before him of God's army. And he worships. It was the clarity and recognition of God's presence. Not some ethereal EBGB, but that God was really there. No, God is always there. I just don't always recognize it. Recognize Him. The presence isn't an it. Because we can worship a presence like it's an idol. When was the last time we came in here and we sat and we became keenly aware that he was here with us? I mean, in a way that was intimate and personal. Because you know what led these people to worship? Being very keenly aware that God was there. The interesting thing, by the way, remember that cloud was above them all the time leading them? 
didn't lead them to worship until they became very keenly aware of how close he was to them. At that point, it was different. And we all know that God's here, He's around, and that kind of thing. But, but are you aware that He's intimate and He wants to speak to you? And in that, if we would listen to what He has to say, we would hear Him tell us He loves us and His honor is enough. And in saying that, what we would recognize is that there would be a place where He starts laying into our life these beautiful promises. And when we embrace them by faith, we can't help but, but worship Him. Or we could go back to embracing the things that we think make us a failure before the sight of other men when the one who loves us so perfectly by grace says, I'm enough. Let me be enough or you'll never worship me and you'll think it's everyone else's problem. You'll think the problem is something's not right elsewhere in the world. I don't know. I, don't, I used to love that song. I don't like it anymore. Or I don't know. I used to love that verse and it doesn't affect me anymore. The problem is maybe I need a new version. Maybe the problem is actually that we're not reaching out in faith anymore. If God can't prove to you how important you are at the cross, nobody's going to be able to prove it any other way. I want to pray right now for us. Because maybe tonight, God starts the story of a whole new chapter in your life, and He starts it with this. There was a person, and they were miserable. They were miserable because they felt like a failure. They were hopeless. They had gotten to the point where they were wailing over it and they just got to the point where they were shattered and giving up. They were just like, I don't, I don't know. It's just not going to happen now. Maybe I'll always be a spinster. Maybe I'll always be childless. Maybe I'll never be more than what I am at this moment. Maybe it'll just be this. And the problem is, there's a part inside of you that knows that there's a greater greatness God has planned in your life and, and, and it wells up and you kind of keep pushing it down because it now irritates you because you, don't under, you can't reconcile this thing, this infinite, great, abundant life greatness that God's placed inside of you. You can't reconcile that to your current circumstances where it doesn't seem like any options or avenues seem like this can manifest. And then you go, I don't get it. And God's like, well, you, because you're trying to look the wrong places, could you look to me and let me speak into your life? And if you just listen and just grab a hold of it by faith, I could change this right now. Right, right, right now I could change this. But you've got to come with a yes. Not if you, I will, but a yes. God, whatever, yes. I know your plan's better than mine. And I'm tired of being broken. The worst part is, is once we review this film, later on what we're going to see is we're the one bashing our own the glass of our being with a hammer. We're the ones doing it. God's like, if you just come to me, I'll be enough. Will you pray with me? To God, you zoomed in on a very embarrassing, vulnerable, humiliating scene in someone's life. Thank you for doing it with them and not us, I suppose. And God, I I know that that, that you really huh, 
that you love to insert yourself into stories that begin just like this. Where it seems so helpless, and even worse yet, the antagonism never seems to stop. And if it's not from somebody else, it's from me, then dumping it on me. Where now I'm just kind of looking and constantly condemning myself. Not because of sin. Not because I'm just doing something wrong all the time, but because I just think I'd be farther along in something than I'm not right now. Or at least as far as I can see. <laughs> and yet, in all of this, God, I, I'm, I'm in this place right now where I'm so hungry to be fruitful. I know Hannah can't see at this moment that you've got so... There's, there's a, a whole gaggle of children that are going to be born to her in the next chapter. She can't see that at this moment. She can't even see the possibility of one child at the beginning of this story. And to make it worse, those people that were supposed to be yours are doing almost anything unimaginable. That just looks nothing like you. And in the middle of this hurricane of misanthropy, here we are seeing somebody that just wants to worship you and you focus in on Him because in the midst of all of this sewage is a pure heart seeking to worship you who in the end of it all there's a broken heart that you promise you'll never turn away who feels like a failure and comes with no accomplishment of her own because just like her name she needs grace and you meet her right there and this kid that's going to be born will be the last great judge and the first great prophet and usher in the first king and second. He will usher in the David for whom your son will be called the son of. And we haven't read the chapters and the enemy has convinced us that we're sort of like the rest of our book is just going to be a constant repeat of this particular chapter. And you have so much more planned. So Lord, for these stalemates, for these things, these tires that are stuck in the mud and we feel we're just going to die here. Tonight, would you change that? We recognize you come with a promise and you never but fulfill them completely. And you speak hope into hopelessness. But we need to come with a yes. That's our responsibility. And we confess to you, our yeses are often conditional and they should never be. So tonight in this room, I pray you would reinstill hope and change that. By grace, 
The grace because you love us, simply because you love us because you're love. Let us settle accounts with you about letting your honor be enough. And in letting your honor be enough tonight, we let Jesus be our Lord and not just Savior, but be the King of our life where He should be. And for that to happen, we have to come with a yes. So God, conquer everything that's attached to the yes to where all there is is a yes in us. We pray you do it as gently as possible, but you never use excessive force. And as Jesus died on the cross when we hated Him, we were enemies in our hearts and minds to Him, we see Your love being entirely reliant on Your kindness and grace, certainly not upon our earnings. And as He rose from the grave, just as You promised, our sins paid for at the cross, now we can live a new life that new life, I pray, Lord, we would see the promises that come part and parcel with it. And tonight, God, don't let us just don't let us leave here unchanged. Don't let us just write ourselves off to say, I guess I'll always be a basket case. A broken person, damaged goods. I do fully believe you've called us all to greatness, but it's your greatness. In your time, in your way, and you, when we're not in practice, we're in prep. And I pray that even tonight we would see that. As we commit ourselves to you, Lord, manifest as you desire and lead us to worship you as we should, to honor you tonight in our obedience to honor you and the kindness we should be displaying to each other. And may your name be quick on our lips in praise. Let it be so, Lord, that when the world around us hears your name, they'll assume it's being praised and not blasphemed by someone who's disappointed, frustrated, or angry. So we commit this to you. And we know you hear us. We pour forth before you, Lord, all this goop in our hearts. Replace it with the purity of your promise, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.